Well, Father, we come before you just um, honored to be here to learn from your word, to understand the true nature of greatness, and to learn from the example of Mary. I pray that this will be a, uh, a message that is used of you to, to shape us into being a, a humble people who value and esteem you above all else and really treasure your greatness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you looked at the bulletin, you'll see that the title of the message is The Greatness of Mary. The Greatness of Mary. Now, <clears throat> what comes to your mind when you think about the greatness of Mary? Right? Now, if you're a Roman Catholic, what comes to your mind? Right? That's what a lot of people are thinking. You going Catholic on us, Pastor Dave? And part of it is because they have a view of the greatness of Mary um, that has been articulated in, well, one in uh, 1854 by Pope Pius IX. He established as dogma the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Immaculate Conception does not talk about the birth of Jesus. It actually talks about the birth of Mary, who they believe was born without original sin. And this is what he says. Let all the children of the Catholic Church who are so very dear to us Hear these words of ours, with a still more ardent zeal for piety, religion, and love, let them continue to venerate, invoke, and pray to the most blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, conceived without original sin. Let them fly with other confidence to the sweet Mother of mercy and grace in all dangers, difficulties, needs, doubts, and fears. Under her guidance... Under her patronage, under her kindness and protection, nothing is to be feared. Nothing is hopeless. Because while bearing towards us a truly motherly affection and having in her care the work of our salvation, she is solicitous about the whole human race. And since she has been appointed by God to be queen of heaven and earth and is exalted above the choirs of angels and saints, and even stands at the right hand of her only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, she presents our petitions in a most efficacious manner. What she asks, she obtains. Her pleas can never be unheard. In their minds, God cannot resist his Son, and his Son cannot resist his mother. She is the one that you can really relate to, and so there is a cult of Mary. And I mean what I say. It's a religious practice that centers on the person of, of Mary. There are prayers to Mary. There are songs to Mary. There are statues of Mary. People will bow down and pray to the statue. And, and really, when you, when you pray to, to Mary... You assume that she has the capability of hearing thousands of simultaneous prayers in hundreds of languages. Now, they will say that they do not worship Mary and that they don't worship Mary in place of God. But that's not what idol worship is about. It's not about worshiping something in place of God. It's about worshiping something in addition to God. And so, yes, they, they venerate, it might be a different word, but that is really uh, the heart of it. And, you know, for, for good Protestants like ourselves, who are rightly troubled by that doctrine, uh, there is a pushback to it. 
I know when I talk to a, a Roman Catholic and I talk about the differences between the religions and I bring up some of the things that they believe about the Immaculate Conception that she was born without original sin. Uh, I bring up that Catholic Church teaches that she remained a virgin all her life and that she is not, and that she was actually taken up to heaven, right? She had an early resurrection or whatever that looks like. And I point out that the Bible flatly contradicts that teaching. For instance, the, the, the teaching that she was a perpetual virgin is pushed back by Matthew 1, 24-25. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. This is when the angel tells Joseph, your, your wife, your fiancé at the time, has not been unfaithful. This is what the Lord is doing. And he took his wife, but he knew her not, which is a euphemism for intimate relations. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. Now, that little word until means up to but not beyond, right? Right there, the biblical teaching is she remained a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and then Joseph and Mary engaged in normal marital uh, relations, right? So I go there. Now, there is a tendency to want to push the issue even more, where, you know what, you say she was a sinner? Well, let me show you all the ways that she sinned, right? And, and kind of in the zeal to basically preserve the righteous worship of the one true God, to push back on Mariolatry, what can be lost if we're not careful is that Mary is a truly heroic woman. She is rightly celebrated as, I think, one of the, the heroes of the Christian faith. She is an example for many of us, men and women, to follow because of her greatness. And what makes her great is not the fact that she carried the second person of the Trinity to term. What makes her great is what can make all Christians great. It's her humility. Her humility. And that's something that we begin to see in Luke 1, 26 through 38. Gabriel has just announced the Annunciation of John. Six months later, this is what we read, starting verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for have you found favor with God? And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the annunciation of Jesus. And it's no accident that in the Gospel of Luke, there are side-by-side annunciations. Side-by-side announcements of of wonderful, majestic births. And, And there's a lot of parallels. For one, both births are announced by Gabriel. Both recipients are told not to fear. The name of the child is mentioned in both births. Both describe the significance of each child. Both of them address some of the concerns. Both announcements note the work of the Spirit and both offer a sign. Now, I mentioned last week that the birth announcement of John was really the opening act of the opening act of the headliner, right? And so you have this great glorious birth announcement and, and there is this heightened anticipation that if the birth announcement is this great, just think about the person who's being announced and if this person is so wonderful, how much more will the headliner be who he's pointing to? So in light of that trajectory, there's some, um, there's some real interesting differences between these birth announcements. Number one, John's birth announcement, where was it? It was in Jerusalem. This one takes place in Nazareth, the armpit of Israel. Sorry if anybody's from Nazareth here, okay? But what built, the building was the temple, where this one, there's not even a disclosed building. The person being announced to was a, a priest married to a woman from the priestly line who is... Uh, deemed righteous in the sight of God. This annunciation is to a young virgin, likely between the ages of 12 and 14, a girl with little or no social status. You see, in all of this, you really get the impression that, that Mary was a nobody who was chosen by God to almost be a somebody. This is a case where God is exalting someone who is humble. It's a picture of what we read in 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6, where Peter is addressing young men aspiring to be elders, and he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. Here is a young woman who receives the opportunity to give birth to the Messiah, and she responds with humility. See, the greatness of Mary is not found in carrying the second person of the Trinity to term. She is not somebody whose greatness mandates that we venerate or pray to her or we build this whole cult of Mary around her. Her greatness is she lived her life to make God great. 
She had the essence of humility. And, and this comes out in three ways. You, you see that Mary has humble roots. Mary has a humble self-regard. And Mary has a, a humble faith. And I think from all of this, what we see is that true greatness, the greatest of all men and women, is found in the attribute of humility. The attribute of humility. So let's look at the three ways she kind of, we see her humility in action. One, we, we notice her humble roots. Turn with me to verse 26 again. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So six months refers to six months since the last birth announcement that they had. And Luke locates this in Nazareth, which is in the area of Galilee. You know what's interesting is when they mention Galilee, it's because people probably didn't know where Nazareth was. Are you guys from small towns? Right, one of the plight of a small town, if you were to say, oh yeah, I'm from Medicine Lodge. Oh, where's that? Uh, it's actually about mm, a half hour south of Pratt. Okay, where's that? Uh, it's about an hour and a half outside of Wichita. Huh, where's Wichita? You know, you can just keep on going on, right? And, and so there is this idea that if you don't even know the name, I mean, that speaks of its insignificance. And from what we know of Nazareth, like I mentioned, it was the armpit of, of Palestine. When uh, Nathaniel hears from Philip that he might have found someone like the Messiah, he finds out where he's from, and Nathaniel says this, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? There was a, there was a disdain for that town. It's a town of about 500 people, and the Israelites just saw it as a backwater town full of hicks, hillbillies, and rednecks. When we drive out to California, uh, we take the 54 through Wichita, through Liberal, and through the Oklahoma Panhandle. And in Goodwell, Oklahoma, there's a university called Panhandle State University. You guys ever seen it? Honestly, I look at the dorms and I think they're modular homes, okay? <laughs> and you look at a place like that, and, and let's say somebody was trying to be somebody, right? Run for president of the United States, and they would ask, well, where did you get your education? Panhandle State University. That's candidate A. Candidate B went to Harvard for his undergrad and got a law degree from Yale. Who's going to be esteemed, right? You know, there, there is something when you're from a small town and you just kind of know that we're just really no big deal, right? Those are her roots. Second thing that we learn about her is that she was engaged to Joseph. She was engaged to Joseph, and Joseph is a descendant of David, one of the great kings of Israel. But how great can you be if you're living in Nazareth after all, right? He, he's a carpenter. And Mary is betrothed to him. And remember how when we talked about Ruth, being a woman in that society, a patriarchal society, um, you really got your identity through the men in your life. 
it was her father, but now she's betrothed to Joseph. And, and this is kind of an interesting process. Right? About 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago, I proposed to, to Becky. And the marriage custom is you, you spend a lot of money on a ring as you make a promise to get married. Right? So that's my obligation. She says yes. And I remember feeling a whole lot better when she bought the dress. I'm like, she is financially invested now. No, no turning back. Oh, you got the wedding venue? Yes, okay, all right. You spent more money. Oh, don't want that to go to waste, right? Well, back in, and then we'd actually get married. Well, back then, they would have a betrothal period where uh, the family had some input, but they would talk to the father of the bride, and he would negotiate with the young suitor, and they would come to almost a contractual arrangement. The idea was, you're taking my daughter away from me, and I love my daughter, but she's worth a lot of money because of all the labor she contributes, so what, are you, what do you got? What do you got? And so they would negotiate a bride price. There'd be some payment. That would be the dowry. And then he would take a year, the suitor would take a year to, to prove himself, to make sure that he can meet all those financial obligations. And after that year, they would actually have a marriage ceremony where they would come together officially as husband and wife. And so, from this, we see that, that Mary is from a nothing town, and, and really she is under the protection of men, right? She's, she's kind of going back and forth. She's under her father's protection. She has her identity from her father, and then through her future husband. She's likely 12 to 14 years old, not old enough to have some sort of summary judgment about her life that she is righteous in the sight of God. I mean, Mary is not necessarily an impressive person. She has humble roots, and the thing is, she knows it. She knows it. She has a, a humble self-regard. So look at verse 28. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, I want you to look at that word, greatly troubled. She was confused. She was perplexed. She was like, what is going on here? And so there's some speculation. Why was she greatly perplexed? One theory is she was talking to an angel. That would do it. And not only was she talking to an angel, she was a female talking to an angel. But the focus is not on just talking to an angel. It's on this greeting. She is called by the angel, O favored one. And when an angel says, O favored one, do you know what Mary probably did? Somebody behind me? Are you talking? Me? Do you know why that is? When you have the, that term favor, when you look at it through the Old Testament, it usually preceded some huge blessing or response to a request of one of the heroes of the faith. Genesis 6, 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord delivered him from judgment. Kind of moving on, we see in Judges 6, 17, Gideon said to the angel of the Lord, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign. It is you who speak to me, and he was chosen to be a judge of Israel. 1 Samuel 1, 18, remember Hannah, sweet lady who was barren, praying before the Lord, 
Eli thought she was drunk, rebuked her, but then she expressed what was on her heart, which is she is childless, and this righteous woman was unable to bear children. And then Eli says, may the Lord give you a child. And in 1 Samuel 1.18, she says, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Let your servant, and she was given the child. David was on the run, forced out of Jerusalem by his son. And in 2 Samuel 15, 16, he tells his high priest, Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. And so, she is given this kind of favor. And Mary is thinking, why are you giving me this kind of favor? Now, that would not be the response of a narcissist, would it? Oh, I'm going to bear the Messiah? I was wondering when you were going to ask. You know me. I tithe and all I get. Every tenth egg goes to the synagogue. There is no young woman in Israel like me. What a privilege. Hashtag blessed. Hey, Gabriel, can you come over here? Let's do a little selfie. <laughs> right. I mean, you can never give a proud person anything and have them be grateful for it because I think they already deserve it. In this case, she was humbled and she was like, I don't know why you're doing this for me, which is what you would expect when somebody has a low self-regard. I'm just a 13-year-old girl from a hick town and you want me to bear the Messiah? You're calling me favored one? And this humble self-regard really shows itself in, I think, the real um, core of humility, which is a humble faith. Faith is a supreme act of humility. We're going to see this in, in verse 30 and following. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So Gabriel reassures her, don't worry, you're not going to die. Do not be afraid. This is good news. You're going to give birth to a son named Jesus. Literally, do you guys know what Jesus means? Literally, Yahweh saves. Okay, store that away for Bible trivia. It means Yahweh saves. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And so she's, she is told that her son will be called great. Now Elizabeth was told that John will be great in the sight of God. Her son will just be great. He will be the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will be no end. You know, this is a reference to him being the Messiah. Right? When we talk about Jesus Christ, Christ is not just his last name, it's his title. And it links to a promise given to 
King David. You guys know the story. David wants to build a house for the Lord, and the Lord says, no, you've actually killed too many people, but I'm going to build a house for you. And he makes this promise. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, from David is going to come a son who will build a house. And that son will have another son, and will have another son, and will have another son. And what God will do is he'll take one of these sons of David and make him his adopted son. Where the king is adopted by God, he's disciplined when he disobeys, he's blessed when he obeys, and, and really the, the, the rise and fall of Israel is really shown through the faithfulness of each king. So that's why when you read through Chronicles and First and Second Kings, good king yields good results. Bad kings is bad for the nation. So what the angel is saying is that your son, he's going to be king. He's going to assume David's throne. He is the long-awaited Messiah. Now, to appreciate this, I mean, this is an ancient Near Eastern fairy tale. Right? If you're a young woman, right, your fairy tale is you dream of being a princess. And if this was set today, she would find out that Joseph is really a prince. And she married Joseph, and then she will be the queen, and they will live happily ever after. Now, in that day and age, where marriages weren't necessarily rooted in romance, one of the highest honors and the highest esteem you can have as a woman is to be the mother of a prince who would be king. That is eternal stature. Because you will have this lifelong relationship with your son, who will have an affection for you, who will love you, who will take care of you. And by the way, your son is the king. That is the highest honor that could be afforded to anyone. That is a weighty, weighty privilege. She's been favored. And what's her response? And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? She senses that this is an immediate blessing, that she's going to have a baby right away. But she also knows that she's still in the betrothal process to, to Joseph, and, and any prospect of marriage is a long time away. And so she asks, how will this be? Now note, she does not ask, how can this be? She does not say, how can this be? Which has shades of doubt. Right? That is actually something that... Uh, that Zechariah asked, right? Can you give me a sign to let me know that this can actually happen? What she asked is, how will this be? Like, I believe this is going to happen. But there's this fact about me, and how will this happen? How will you bring this to pass? I mean, this is really a, a question of, of wonder. How are you going to do this? I just want to know. I read this past week that currently we are living what's called the age of doubt. The age of doubt. 
where there is a suspicion towards all things supernatural and all things divine. And, and in the age of doubt, if you want to know the truth, the place you turn to is science. Now, I watched a lot of college basketball the last three weeks, maybe too much. But one of the commercials that was in the cycle was for Hills Pet Foods. And the tagline was, science did that, right? Science did that. And they treat science like a person, where, where science is almost, um, almost godlike in its explanatory power. Science can help you get the proper diet for your dog. Science explains creation and how we came to be. Science even explains love, right? Did you know that your love is not necessarily a result of you feeling a spiritual kinship with somebody, but is driven by an evolutionary desire to perpetuate the human race and pass your seed on to the next generation? I didn't know that. I actually thought I loved my kids, but I guess I don't. <laughs> science did that. And I'm not against science. I'm against treating science like a person, though. Science is a tool, not a person. Science is a, something that God has given men made in the image of God so that we can rule and subdue the earth. And it's been wonderful, right? I'm very thankful for science as a gift to be wielded to perpetuate the human race and to be fruitful and multiply and rule and subdue the earth. But this is a problem. When you see science as kind of like the God of this planet that explains everything, you lose a sense of wonder. Uh, you lose a sense of transcendence and even a, a higher authority because science doesn't come with an ethical code. So in an age of doubt where we always go to science and there's no ethical code that comes with it, people are left to themselves to do what is right in their own eyes to determine what is right and what is wrong. And so there is an inherent skepticism towards anyone who claims to corner the market on truth, right? We are taught that those with authority and those with power, uh, they're often in that position and they want to maintain that position and they oppress people so that they can keep it. We, we begin to doubt traditional structures. We, we begin to doubt their sincerity. We begin to doubt what's really going on with them. And do we not live in a society where people see doubt as a good thing? If you don't doubt, you're not thinking. If you don't doubt, you're not seeing reality. If you don't doubt, you are naive. And so there is a prove-it-to-me mentality. I'm not sure about this, and that's a good thing. That's what makes me human. That's what makes me curious. That's what makes me a learner. But did you know that doubt is never celebrated in Scripture? You don't have the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, and then the hall of doubt in Hebrews 12. Because what doubt does is it basically makes the doubter the arbitrator, arbiter of what is right and wrong and what's true and false. You have to determine your own truth for yourself. Truth is not something that is given to you. It's something that you have to discover but Mary's question, I think, reveals that she was fine taking God at his word. She was fine humbly accepting the facts. The angel said it. That settles it. I will believe it. 
often um, I encounter people who will say, well, if God is real, why doesn't he give me a sign? You guys ever heard that before? If he's real, why doesn't he give me a sign? You know what they're really asking? God, I am not content with any of the signs that you've already given me. I would like you to do a custom sign to my own liking. And if you do it enough, maybe I'll believe in you. Am I not worth you doing all that, Lord? But you know what? Such a God doesn't actually exist. God doesn't stand in heaven like some sort of short-order cook taking orders from all these people who are asking him to do certain things. God says, you submit to me, not the other way around. A God who feels an obligation to submit to every single human whim and request is not the God of the Bible. He's already given plenty of signs. Creation and the resurrection are the top two. But when people ask for signs, they ask for something more. They basically say, God, you need to prove yourself to me. And they exalt themselves over him. That is not faith. That is not faith. Faith is content with the information that God has given them. And we'll talk more about that later on. So Mary doesn't ask for a sign. Mary just asks, how is this going to be? And the angel explains it, verse 35. And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Right, God through the mysterious interaction of the Holy Spirit, will overshadow her, and she will be able to become pregnant without sexual intimacy. This is a true miracle. And this child will become holy. He will be set apart. He will be consecrated. He'll become uh, the Son of God. And at a minimum, that speaks of being David's son, the Messiah. Uh, as we keep on reading in Luke, we see that there might be more to it, that he would be the divine son. But her understanding at this point is probably this is the Messiah, which kind of explains why she didn't quite get certain things later on in Jesus' ministry, right? She was still somewhat confused and didn't have the whole story. And then the Lord gives her a sign that she doesn't ask for, by the way. It's okay for God to give signs if he decides to give one. He says, and behold... Your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Now, this is a little twist. Elizabeth and Mary knew each other. They were cousins in some form. This will verify that what is happening is true. And then he says, and I love this passage, for nothing is impossible with God. He can do anything. Just watch. And with that, the angel is about to leave, and Mary says this, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now you think about what Mary's about to face, right? On one hand, she says, Behold, hey, I'm your servant. But she said that, knowing that Joseph may not buy the story. Mary, you're pregnant? What happened? The Holy Spirit came to me on high and impregnated me. What? Yeah, and an angel talked to me? Uh-huh. She knew that even if Mary were to be married to 
Joseph, there would be a sense of scandal and reproach. Guess they couldn't wait for the wedding day. Their reputation would be tarnished. But you know what? It was enough that God spoke to her and told her that this is the way it's going to be. And she submitted to it in faith. You see, faith is really the, the, the heart of, of worship, isn't it? Lord, all this stuff doesn't quite make sense to me. I don't know how all of this is going to work out, but I know that this is true about you, and I'm going to live like it's true and believe you. Now, the opposite of this kind of faith and humility is pride, right? Instead of saying, Lord, you're worth it, I'll just do what you say, pride says, you're worth it. You look at some of the popular slogans that we have out there, you deserve a break today. Remember that from the 80s? McDonald's, you're worth it. L'Oreal, just do it, right? You can do it, Nike. Think different, Apple. I mean, we have a world that is focused on you. And all these advertisers, they basically say, listen, if you buy this product, you will become great. People will envy you, people will worship you, people will admire you. Right, that is ultimately what they are soliciting is that you will have some form of self-worship. You'll have some enhanced knowledge, some enhanced ability, some enhanced beauty so that all will admire you and you will get your own way. This world is about you. You deserve a break today. And this concept of, of pride and basically self-worship was, was introduced by another woman in the garden. Right? You go back to Genesis chapter 3. A wily serpent comes up to, uh, to Eve and said, Did God really say you can't eat of any tree of the garden? And Eve wily said, Not any tree, just one tree. And then he says this. He says, You know what? The reason why God doesn't want you to, to do that is because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve, are you okay with God hoarding all this knowledge? Are you going to really rely on Him to tell you what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong? Wouldn't it be better if you could just figure that out for yourself? That way you don't have to rely on God the whole time. You don't have to trust in Him and, and just have faith that what He says goes. You can learn yourself. And so she takes the fruit and eats it. I don't need God to tell me what's good and evil. I'll just figure it out myself. Right? That is pride, which leads to rebellion, that is rooted in a sense of, of self-worship, right? Where you believe you're the good of all good and glory. And, and that is something that is deeply troubling to God because God knows that all worship rightfully belongs to Him. When we read in James 4, 4 through 6, the Lord's half-brother says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to make himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's talking about spiritual adul adultery here, right? Which is rooted in idolatry. And idolatry is not about necessarily just worshiping little golden statues. It's basically worshiping what you believe those little golden statues will give you. Right? If you don't have enough rain, you worship the little golden statue that will give you rain. You're not really devoted to, let's say, Baal or something like that. You're devoted to more rain, more money, 
You don't think God's going to give it to you, so you go someplace else. And that's adultery when people pursue after the world. You see, if people are addicted to self-worship and pride, they know instinctively that the God of the Bible will never give you that. God is not about sharing worship with anyone. So if you want to be worshipped, you want to be praised, you want to be adored, God's going to say no. And so you go to the world and the world says, let's see what we can work out. And sometimes you do get worshipped and adored and sometimes you don't, but you think it's just around the corner if you just do enough of this. If I have this illicit relationship, then I will feel good about myself. I have somebody who will worship and adore me. If I do this unethical business practice, then I'll finally make it big, and then people will know that I really matter. And people get resentful when they don't get what they're hoping for, right? This is all adultery because you're trying to get praise for yourself, and you turn the world to do so. And God makes it clear, or do you not know it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. God gets jealous for that. He's not jealous of you, he's jealous for you. And he's saying that all that worship rightfully belongs to me, not to you. But when people get a clue and they finally humble themselves, verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. When you, when When you're proud, God's in opposition to you, right? If you want worship for yourself, God says, no, you don't. That belongs to me. But when you say, it's not about me, it's about you, God gives you grace. Elsewhere, it says he will exalt you. He will exalt you. Because God will exalt a humble person because when a humble person is exalted, who who else will they exalt? They will exalt God. This is why humble people, you know, they they have a wonder of God's grace. They're always amazed. They have a private prayer life, not, a, not, not only a public one, but a private one because they really see that God is indispensable for moving this forward. Humble people are, are not likely to complain because they're always doing better than they deserve. Humble people are extremely thankful and, and content because of that same concept. They forgive easily because they have been forgiven much. And they have a robust faith, right? They're, they're not putting God on trial. They're not saying, you need to prove it to me. They're okay that some things are outside of their reach. They're not like Eve who wants to know what God has not revealed to them. But it, they'll just say, it is enough, Lord, that you are in control and that you are all wise and that you are all good. I may never know the answer to these questions, but I will have faith in you. And that's really the, what makes Mary great, right? She doesn't know all, all the answers. All she knows is that nothing is impossible with God, and she will embrace it, and she will submit to it. And this is where the Catholic Church gets it wrong about Mary. They say, well, she's so humble, we ought to worship her. We ought to venerate her for her humility. But Mary would just say, listen, I'm not God. <laughs> Why are you venerating me? Why are you treating me like I'm the high priest when it's clearly Jesus? She would be appalled at all these statutes. I hope that God protects her from what's happening here on the earth. Her greatness is shown in 
humility, and her path for greatness is a path that all of us can take. And interestingly, it was a path that her son took, right? For his greatness was accomplished through humility. Philippians 2, 5 through 10. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Through Mary's humility, she brought Jesus into this world. And Jesus lived that humble life far below any station that he deserved, right? He then went to the cross and was humiliated for your sake. And God in turn raised him up and then exalted him, so not at the name of Mary, but at the name of Jesus, right? Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is our humble Savior. And you can be great like him and great like Mary when you have a humility of faith that says it's all about him. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are just grateful for the humility of, of Mary on display. And Lord, that is something that we crave for ourselves. And I admit that it often escapes us and escapes me. Um, Forgive my own proud thoughts, my own desire to want to be honored and and respected, um, complaining, discontent. I, I pray for everyone here that we will seek to be a humble church where you are praised, you are appreciated, you are enjoyed, and that you will in turn, exalt us so that we might just see the wonder and the glory of humility. We pray for all these things in Christ's name. Amen.